Well, welcome everyone to the first week in our Advent series, Faithful God, Faithful Guides. If you don't have a Bible, I'd certainly invite you to, to grab one or to have one open. We're going to try and go back and forth a little bit this morning, or you can just listen. This, of course, is recorded. You can go back and watch it at home as many times as you like. But today marks the beginning of this Advent season. Advent, of course, coming from the Latin word, I believe it's Adventus, which means arrival. And the idea behind this is back in the ancient days, and we'll find out even today, um, there would be a time when a messenger might come to your city or come to your town. In Greek, the word for this messenger was angeloi. Sometimes it's translated angel. And they would give you news, maybe good news, perhaps of great joy, but they would be telling you that sometime in the future, a prominent figure, maybe a king or a prince or a sheik or someone like that was going to come and visit your town. And so between the time of that message and their arrival, their advent was this season where you would prepare for them coming. And so how you prepared demonstrated what you thought or how you honored that guest as they arrived. If you were completely indifferent, if you didn't do anything, and they just showed up one night and had to knock on the door, you would have insulted them. But if you prepared by cleaning the streets and by, by doing all kinds of pomp and circumstance, when they arrived, it would find out that you honored them well. And so we in the world today actually also have these seasons. And if we don't know how to prepare, thankfully, the world is all too ready to give us some options. Here's the first one that I found. We have Advent calendars. We have Advent calendars for everything now. But through the season of Advent here, here's 12 days of jewelry. Because nothing says welcome baby Jesus like 12 new pieces of bling. But to be fair, the Magi... The Magi did come and give him gold and frankincense and myrrh, am I right? There's another one. The uh, infusia, 25 days of fizzy bath treats. Just in case you're really trying to, you know, get cleaned up, clean your life, clean the outside, clean the inside. But again, to be fair, the shepherds came and shepherds were kind of known to stink a little bit. One of my favorites probably is the olive in June, 25 days of Manny magic. But again, Mary just gave birth. You know, she might want a Manny and Petty as something, you know, just to sort of make her feel alive again. There's all kinds of ways that the world will invite us to enjoy this Advent season. The question, though, for you and me is how will we prepare? What is it that Jesus would expect? What does it look like to prepare in such a way that honors our king. Now, if we need just one more example, we have a perfect example from really, really present day. Again, Advent is this time when you would receive this message that something was about to happen in the future and you would take this time to prepare. And so this, again, just kind of, if you could, is like an example of our world. On December 2, 2010, the nation, and I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, of Qatar, was awarded the 2022 World Cup. Right, And so the, they received this announcement in 2010 that 12 years after that, they are going to host quite likely the largest event in the world. And so how do they prepare? Well, they prepare by building eight brand new stadiums, numerous hotels, in some cases, entire cities. They spent, are you ready for this, 300 billion dollars preparing for this event. That is more than all of the World Cups and all of the Olympic host sites 
combined since the beginning. This is what the world sees as an advent. This is how they prepare for the coming of the largest event in the world. They spend $300 billion. But the other question that begs to be asked is how did they do this? Now, reportedly, reportedly, this is a nation around 350,000 people. How do you build all of this infrastructure, all of these facilities, all of these things? Well, you do so through migrant workers. And it's reported that in a nation that gets to 125 degrees in the summer, nonstop building, 6,500 people are said to have died in the construction of all of the stuff. I mean, that, that should shock us in a certain sense. I mean, that is, what, that is what an advent is in our very midst, this preparation for the biggest event the world has ever known, the World Cup. I know maybe in America it's not so much to us, but around the rest of the world, this is, it. This is how we prepare. We spend gobs and gobs and gobs of money, and we do so on the backs of the oppressed. I mean, to, to me, this is, this is a hearkening, this is a calling out, this is a moment of reflection. What, what is going on? This, this may even be a tipping point of some sorts. Well, if we are to prepare for the future, if we are to prepare for what's coming next, if we are to spend this season of Advent in a wise and fruitful manner, then one of the things that we need to know is we need to know what the future holds, what is coming, what are we preparing for. And so we generally then would go to the prophets. Now the prophets are those who not only could sort of see God's desired future, but also through interpreting the present day could tell us what was happening based on that. It wasn't that they just had visions of the future, it was that they had eyes to see and ears to hear what was going on around them in the world and in the culture, and then they could predict this is what is going to happen next. Both what this is what God is going to do next, and this is what you are called to do as God's people. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read one of these all, I don't want to say all too familiar, but maybe all too familiar Advent verses. We're going to start actually at verse 1 of chapter 9, and you're going to see it here up on the screen. Isaiah 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Notice this, this thing that is all too common in the prophets. There's sort of this judgment. There's this gloom, but there is also this future hope that is promised. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light 
has dawned. So we need to begin asking ourselves, what is this deep darkness? We'll get to it in a minute. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This is, this is that day when there will be no more war. There will be no more of this. In fact, the boots and the bloody garments, they're just thrown in the fire to be burned and never seen again. How, how? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so in the midst of this doom and gloom of Naphtali and Zebulun, in the midst of this darkness where they're seeing a great light, the promise of God is that there will be a child who is born. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His, his government and his justice will have no end. Why? Because of the zeal of God, the passion, the holiness, the faithfulness of God, the promise of God that will never fail. Now, how many of you have heard this before? How many of you have any idea what's going on in Isaiah at this point? All right, like three of you. Kudos. All right, for the rest of you, though, we need to, we need to kind of understand. And the reason we're doing this is because it's all going to lead into how we should sort of approach or understand Advent in our time and in our day. We know how the world tells us to approach this season, buy stuff like gold and bath salts and Godiva chocolates and things like that in nature, or we know how the world prepares for these great things by just, well, we've already covered that, right? So, so what is actually happening here in Isaiah? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, we understand that Isaiah comes to, to his calling to be a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died, Right? That's the time when he sees this beautiful, we see the Son of Man sitting on the throne, the, the train of his robe is filling the temple. That's the whole, oh, whom shall I send? Here I am, send me type thing. In the year that King Uzziah died. Well, who is this King Uzziah? Well, at this point in time, just so you're aware, this is, um, well, this is the division of the nation of Israel. There is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uzziah was the king of the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is prophesying primarily down here in Judah. Judah's the one with a little square around it, all right? The northern kingdom was capital Samaria, southern kingdom, capital Jerusalem. Uzziah is the king of the southern kingdom. Now, Uzziah does all kinds of incredible things. He's actually, he, he does good, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. He builds up their military. He, he devises all kinds of great ways of defending Jerusalem and building up their treasury. He's a man of power, of wealth, and of might. But in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, it says this. But after Uzziah became powerful... 
his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. So, so in other words, this man who had originally been faithful to God, but then his, faith, his, his sort of heart, his faith was strong, but then he amassed all kinds of these other things like wealth and power. It ended up leading to pride. And he decided, instead of doing what God tells me to do, I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. And so because of that, he's struck with leprosy and there's kind of like all the stuff like what's going on in our kingdom now, all right? And so there's this, there's this sliver of darkness that starts to come in on the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, after Uzziah, because Isaiah is speaking in the year that King Uzziah died, this is what I saw. And so now Isaiah is being called to be a prophet, to speak to Judah and to tell them both about their present and about their future. So after Uzziah comes a king named Jotham. Jotham did mostly what was right. He actually was someone who it says, you know, who feared God, who followed him. But interestingly enough, what it also says is that he didn't take away the high places. This was the places that people worshiped gods other than God. So we know there's a temple in Jerusalem, but quite frankly, the people have been like, but we know our neighbors over there for protection offer these sacrifices and burn this incense to this God. And we know that these people over here, right, we know that God is here, but over here they do this and this and this for protection and for, for, for good things to happen to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so at this point, it's as though, for instance, God is becoming a little bit smaller and their world is growing, like they've got over here. So, so God becomes this part of their life, but they also have this part over here and this part over here and this part over here. So while Jotham did good himself, he let the people do what was right in their eyes. Now, all the while, this will make sense at some point, all right? All the while... What's happening in Judah and in, in Israel, the northern kingdom, what's happening in these places is Assyria, the, the most powerful nation on earth at that point, is sort of encroaching on their territory. In fact, the northern kingdom is already paying tribute to Assyria. They're kind of like mobsters, right? They come in and they're like, hey, if you pay us tribute, we'll protect you from your enemies. And they're like, you're our enemies. They're like, yeah, let's not worry about the little details, right? You just pay us tribute. And we'll keep away from your enemies. Well, they did that for a little while, but then the northern kingdom says, we don't really want to do that anymore. And so the northern kingdom says to the southern kingdom, to Jotham, come alongside of us and fight with us against Assyria. And Jotham is like, nope. And so they decide to come down and set siege to Jerusalem. So now instead of, a, instead of attacking their real enemy, they attack their own family. What a weird thing, right? They come down and set siege to Jerusalem because Jerusalem doesn't agree with them in attacking their neighbor. Now, that's Jotham. And so what we see here is that more and more darkness is encroaching upon Judah. All right. Now, sometime during this time, because they didn't want to pay tribute and things of that nature, Assyria does conquer the northern kingdom. They, in the northern kingdom, by the way, you see in that little circle, I don't know if that's actually up there anymore. Maybe Dave can put it back up there if it's not already up there. The circle in the northern kingdom is identifying where Zebulun and Naphtali are. Wait a minute, I've heard those words before. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem and to the king there, he's saying, look, I know in the past he humbled the people up there. God sent Assyria because the northern kingdom was unfaithful, right? God sent Assyria to be a judgment on them, and Assyria came and conquered them. Now, they're under control of Assyria. I know, just, just bear with me, all right? Just, just, just come along with me. So now, after Jotham is King Ahaz. How many of you have heard of King Ahaz before? Yeah, he's not a good one, all right? Sometimes it's like, hey, you know, this king was born and then he did good in the eyes of the Lord. This king was, this king was born and he did not do good in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, it says he sacrificed his own children. And so we're, what was happening here in Judah is we are reaching a tipping point, right? That first there was like this little sliver of darkness. Everything is great under Uzziah. Ah, well, he went and burned incense in the temple. That's not what he's supposed to do. A little bit of, of darkness comes in. Then under Jotham, it's like, well, I'm going to do what's right, but I don't really care what everybody else does. And then there's a little bit of encroachment from outside, a little bit of influence from outside people coming in. So darkness is coming just a little bit more. And then comes Ahaz. And Ahaz is all darkness, they're, 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 it just from beginning to end, all the things that he does, it's all darkness. And so Isaiah goes directly to Ahaz because what's happening is, is again, the northern kingdom is now attacking and then Assyria is also on the verge of being right outside. Just hear these words from Isaiah chapter seven. When Ahaz son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So again, these nations from the north are coming to attack Jerusalem, Judah, because they will not partner with them against Assyria. We're getting there, folks. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out. So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, which is right next to the field where they play soccer. It's where they clean the clothes. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. So in essence, what Isaiah is told to tell Ahaz is like, look, dude. First of all, not a good dude. Secondly, I know the pressure you're under. I know everything that's just kind of raining down on you right now. I know the northern kingdom is coming against you, but look, look, my friend, they're nothing. They are two smoldering stubs. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, this will not take place. It will not happen. 
So Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, look, God is in control. We know that whatever's happening around you, we know that your, your level of hope right now is about this big, but I want to assure you this will not happen. He's inviting him amidst all of the things that Ahaz sees on the outside to trust in God for hope. For the head of Aram, he says, is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Don't worry about this, Ahaz. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you should write this down or underline if you have your Bible. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So in other words, Ahaz You have heard from the God who is so large, God controls all of the nations, all of these things. God is in control. Do not worry about what you see. You see, but you do not perceive. You you hear, but you do not understand. Have faith, because if you do not have faith, then you will not stand at all. Ahaz gives this rather curious reply and says, I won't put my God to the test. And then there's actually another Advent verse. You can read that later. That's Isaiah chapter seven. Oh, I have a picture of that. There you go. What does Ahaz do? If you turn back to Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 16, it says this. Again, just hear these words. Second Chronicles 28, 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king's of Assyria for help. So Isaiah, the prophet who can interpret the times, who can interpret the future, says, do not worry. These things are not going to happen. I know that darkness is surrounding you on every side, but do not worry. Have faith, because without faith, you will not stand. Trust in God for your hope in the midst of this darkness. And what does Ahaz do? He turns to Assyria for help. He turns to what he can see. He turns to what he has experienced before. He he turns to the things that he hears with his ears and sees with his eyes, but he doesn't understand or perceive. This is what Abraham Heschel says about this, though. Before we're too harsh, he says, no other ruler would have acted differently. The state was in peril. And so he appealed to the great power for military aid. Isaiah offered words, but Assyria offered an army. To rely on God rather than on weapons would have been to subordinate political wisdom to faith? The issue was not to let faith in God be a guide in his personal life. The issue was to let faith be the guide in a public life. Other people's lives were at stake. The future of the country was in peril. The king would have had to justify to his people a refusal to ask for help. So the point of all of this is that as darkness continues to close in, the leaders of God's people, God remains faithful. He's gonna give us a prophecy here in just a minute. But what happens over and over and over again is the people just continue to let darkness creep in. They let the world influence who they are and how they make choices so that they make God smaller and smaller and smaller. 
and they make power and wealth and culture and society and, and, and relationships bigger and bigger and bigger. They now rule and govern. It's not a matter of whether it's faith in, in his life. It's about faith overall. And so into that context, we hear these words from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so in those days, where would they have looked? Just to be fair, they're not looking to Jesus a long time later. They look to Ahaz's son. Is this, is this what you're talking about, Isaiah? Is this what you're talking about? That's right. That's what we need. We just need a new king. Ahaz has gone off the rails. We totally understand that. But if, if we just had a new king like all the other nations, things would be great. And so Hezekiah comes to, to become the king. And Hezekiah does a bunch of wonderful things. He, he, he cleanses the temple. He tears down all of the high places. He prepares them as a city and as a people to be sieged. He built a 533-foot tunnel. You can go into it if you want to, where he brings fresh water from outside of the city, inside of the city, just to protect them. He makes all these very wise things. In fact, the Bible said he is. There has never been a king before or after him in all of Judah who was greater than Hezekiah. He trusts in God. He did, right? Well, right up until toward the end, you see, he, he gets this illness. He even gets an illness. He asks Isaiah to pray to God for him, and he's cured of this illness. He amasses wealth. He amasses power. He's faithful to God for such a long time. And here again, I say, we are just at a tipping point. And what happens when he's threatened by Assyria coming down from the north is he brings in this envoy from Babylon. Babylon's kind of like this new nation on the stage, and they don't like Assyria either. And so they, they come to Jerusalem, and what does is, what is Hezekiah do? Does he tell him about, like, no, I don't need your help because I believe in this incredible God, this God who just healed me from disease, this God who has been with me every step of my life, this God who has helped me to amass wealth and power and all these things. Glory be to God. He doesn't. He opens up the treasury of the temple and says, look at all this money I got. You guys want to help me out? Okay, I got money to pay you. And then if it weren't, if it couldn't get any worse, he receives those from Egypt and Cush who come and say, hey, we don't like, we don't like that guy either. How many verses did I put in here? We don't like Assyria either. And so why don't we partner with you? And so Hezekiah says, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Egypt. This is what it says in Isaiah 28. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us. For we have made a lie, our refuge and falsehood, our fire. And essentially they say, we've made a covenant with death. We made a covenant with Egypt. When this scourge comes, it can't touch us. It's Jerusalem, it's Egypt, and it's Babylon. Now, baby, we got this. 
This is what it says in Isaiah 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help in Pharaoh's protection to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will be your disgrace. It's as though God is like, can we do a reality check for just a minute? He's like, God, Egypt. I feel like I wrote a book about this once. Oh, yeah, it's called Exodus. And in Exodus, I win and Egypt loses. Hezekiah, what are you doing? Why are you not trusting me to bring you out of this? You side with Egypt. They already lost. I'm bigger than them. I'm I'm more powerful than them. I'm stronger than them. But the reality is what? Hezekiah looked around him. And he saw what he saw, and he said, hey, 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 what is faith again? It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we, is that right? Is that in Hebrews, Dan? I'm looking at Dan. I'm hoping that he backs me up on this one. I didn't look that one up. I looked all the other ones up. He looked around, and he used his eyes and his ears instead of what he should have used, which was this. In Isaiah 30, it says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. All right, so what's the point of all this, right? The point of all this is like this marks the beginning of the season of Advent. For Israel, when when Isaiah gives this prophecy, this is a tipping point in their nation. This is the question of what is going to happen in their future. Are they going to be, are they going to defeat Assyria or are they going to be defeated by Assyria? Are they going to defeat Babylon or are they going to be defeated by, by, by Babylon? And what God says is like in repentance and rest is your salvation. He's like, if you trusted me, you've got to understand, I am the God over all of this. But by that time, they had made God this big. They said, there's God in my life, but then there's money, and then there's power, and then there's military strength, and then there's connections, and there's treaties, and there's relationships, and it's as though they relegated God just to the place of religion. It's crazy, right? It's weird, right? What are we going to do as we prepare for this time of Christmas? Because I'm I'm not going to lie, I feel like, maybe some of you do too, do you feel like this world is a bit like on a tipping point? Do you feel like our politics are just a little bit on a tipping point? Do you feel like families are fighting against one another just, just a little bit from time to time? Do you feel like our economy maybe slightly kind of might just be at a bit of a tipping point? Do you feel like relationships, do you feel like culture and society are headed in the right direction? Do you think we're just about to lose it? All right, I think we're just about to lose it. (laughs) I'm going to wrap this up as quickly as I can. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we make a, a tip toward the right way? Well, first of all, the scripture says that faith and hope are the dance in the darkness, right? It's that combination that where does our hope come from? Does it come from wealth? Does it come from power? Does it come from this, that, or the other thing? No, 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 no. It comes solely from faith, right? In rest, oops, 
in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. The season of Advent and preparing for when Jesus arrives is what type of God will we have when Christ comes? A huge God or a little itty bitty baby? As we prepare for the greatest event, what are we doing? How are we moving toward this understanding? It's a big deal. It's a tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell, and I promise this will be the third to the last time I mention Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote this book called Tipping Point. And he said there's these points in time when things turn around and change dramatically. One of them is in hush puppies, right? How many of you owned hush puppies back in the day? All right, in 1994, do you know how many pairs of hush puppies they sold? 30,000. I don't know if you're in shoe sales, that's not very many. In 1995, you want to know how many pairs they sold? 430,000. In 1996, you want to know how many pairs they sold? One and a half million. What happened? What happened? You want to know what happened? A few kids in Manhattan started buying up these shoes from thrift shops and wearing them to the clubs and the party scene. They got caught up by fashion designers and they got used on the runway and all of a sudden they were winning an award for the best fashion accessory in 1995 and it just exploded. Fax machines in 1984, Sharp sold 80,000 of them. By 1987, there were 5 million fax machines all around the world. There are these points and, and tipping points where something goes from one thing all the way over to the other side. And so that's what I'm inviting us to consider this Christmas, this Advent season. What could possibly happen that could be a tipping point for you and me, for our world, for our culture, for our nation? I feel like we're right on the verge of this. How do we tip past it? Well, Malcolm Gladwell says there are a few things. Number one, there's the law of the few. It doesn't take a mass amount to get this started. It just takes a few. A few people who are passionate, a few people who understand, a few people who are salesmen who want to tell this good story. Uh, in, in Holland, I feel like, are there at least a few like real Christians? How about in here, just a couple? I mean, come on, there's, there's more than a few, right? But there's more than a few, but the question is, how will we prepare for this Jesus? How will we make our God bigger and wider and want more and more wonderful as we approach this? How do we not just put this to the religious aspect, but how do we make it bigger? Number one, it's the law of a few. It's a few passionate people who can just transform an idea until it becomes an absolute epidemic. And I mean that in a positive sense. The second thing is stickiness. The message have to have, has to have something that sticks. Unfortunately, in his book, he used cigarettes, so I probably can't use that example. But what we do learn is this. Early in Isaiah, and I know this is long, it's okay. Early in Isaiah, this is what Isaiah begins by, by prophesying. He says, God comes and says, hey, everybody, your religious festivals, your new moon feasts, your Sabbath, all your religious sacrifices and th stuff like that, he's like, I'm not interested in that anymore at all. But he does say this. He says, learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. 
It's as though God says, I don't want to be just in your religious services. I want to be your point, your point person of faith in all of life. It's not just about whether you worship at the temple. About, it's whether you go out in this world and do justice and goodness. Friends, in our world today, if the church bent its heart, bent its eyes and ears toward justice and goodness in the world, that is the stickiest message that will connect with the next generation we ever possibly could have. If we did things like say, I don't know, fed the hungry, quenched the thirsty, clothed the naked, invited the stranger in, cared for the sick, visited prisoner, I don't know, just crazy, the world would tip. It would tip just a little bit. And then last, but certainly not least, is that context, context is king. There has to be a time and a place for these absolute explosions and tipping points to take place. Context is king, and I think that like right now, during the holiday season, that's a great possibility. It's a great possibility to be a people who say, you wanna know what? My family doesn't need another 12 days of jewelry box. It doesn't need 25 different bath salts and things of that nature. But somebody over here needs a coat. Somebody over here needs boots. Somebody over here needs to be invited for Christmas. Somebody over here needs a Christmas card and a letter because they're incarcerated. Somebody here needs the good news that they can be brought out from some sort of addiction. How? Not by, by strength or by money, but by the power of the Lord. Because we, we call this thing faithful God and faithful guides. And we did so because all through the scripture, God remains faithful. No matter how unfaithful Israel is, God has always remained faithful. And God says, there's always hope. If you place your faith in me and look to me as your hope, not just in these little itty bitty things, but in everywhere in life, you will have success and you'll have peace and you'll have prosperity. And so we see this in John chapter one through five, and this is where we'll close. We heard about this child who's gonna be born. The government's gonna be on his shoulders. Light has broken into the darkness, and it wasn't Hezekiah. It wasn't any human being. Rather, it was God in the flesh, and the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This world needs two things. One, it has already, a faithful God. Amen? And number two, it needs faithful guides. In the Old Testament, it was, it was the prophets. It was those who were ostracized by the rest of the world, but who, who had this word from God. They heard. They could look with eyes that could see, with ears that could understand. And they shared that message no matter what it meant to them. In the New Testament, ultimately, we see this is true in Jesus and only Jesus. He is our only faithful guide, and yet he is also the faithful God. But he bids you and me to do the same. We have a faithful God who comes to us year after year, day after day, minute after minute. The invitation for us is to be faithful guides. And so as we approach Christmas, I just want to invite you to do this one thing. Wonder with us about how big God could be. 
God isn't relegated just to this, that, and the other thing, but God is so much larger. God will speak to you if you're quiet enough to listen. God will, God will guide you if you are faithful enough to walk. We're at a tipping point, friends. We are at a tipping point. And God is ready, I believe, to do remarkable things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we look in the scriptures at a world not necessarily that or all that unlike our own. There are pressures and darkness and struggles all around us. And Lord, what we, what we see, if we're honest, is we see people who quite frankly fail time and time again. God, we know that story because that's our story too. Too often in life we have made you too small and have relied on our own strength when things really get dark, when things really get difficult. But God, the invitation for us during this Advent season is to open our eyes and wonder, to see where you're at work out in the world, defending the cause of the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow, enacting justice and righteousness, taking the boots and bloody clothes of war and burning them in the fire for there is no need for them anymore. God, we cannot understand just like Hezekiah, just like Ahaz, just like Jotham, just like we cannot understand how this will come to be. But Lord, we believe that hope and faith are that dance in the darkness that brings in the light of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.